May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to uh, all of you who are mothers. Um, although this is a pretty unusual Mother's Day, we can't gather, I can't gather with my mother. There'll be lots of people who won't be able to visit their mothers today, and there'll be lots of you who are mothers who won't be able to gather with your family. So, happy Mother's Day, although it's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? A, a day with mixed emotions as we wait for Monday. And, well, Mother's Day is always a little awkward for some people. It's not a great day for a whole lot of reasons. So we also have to acknowledge that. Nonetheless, happy Mother's Day for all of you for whom Mother's Day is a celebration. I wonder as we think about Mother's Day, what our best experience of either being a mother or experiencing a mother's love might, off, might offer us or teach us about the love of God for us and for all people. Not only is Mother's Day a little bit different this year, I'd have to say one of the things I've enjoyed about Mother's Day this year actually is not having all the constant barrage of ads inviting me to buy stuff for my mother. So that's been different, um, but life is different, isn't it? And life has been different for a while. And like the mixed bag of emotions that we have around Mother's Day, there's probably a mixed bag of, of emotions about the announcement on Monday. So there'll be some people who are just desperate for us to go down to level two for a whole lot of good reasons. Some because uh, their, their livelihood depends on us moving to level two. Others are just bored out of their brains and need a lot more freedom. Uh, and so there's a whole lot of people for whom level two can't come soon enough. There's a whole lot of people though, like me, who are quite enjoying life as it is at the moment and are quite happy to stay as we are and then there'll be a whole lot of you and others who will be a little uncertain about whether we should go to level two and a whole lot of people for whom moving to level two brings a layer of uncertainty and fear that's not very welcome. Last week we were offered in the midst of all of this the image of Christ the Good Shepherd and in particular how John placed Jesus in the Good Shepherd tradition, a tradition which some people argue begins with the 23rd Psalm and some of the themes were then taken out of that Psalm and reinterpreted again and again through Scripture, including by the, each of the Gospel writers and by Jesus himself. And so last week uh, we saw how John placed Jesus in that tradition, a tradition that states that God is the ultimate provider of both provision and protection. And I wondered at the time what that meant for us during this pandemic. As we wait for Monday's announcement, how are we experiencing God's protection and provision? During our time of praying together on Friday morning, I was struck by these words which came in the gospel reflection from the daily devotion for the day. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You are willing to die for the sheep. You are the good shepherd. As the Father knows you and you know the Father, in the same way, you know your sheep. And your sheep know you. You are willing to die for us. 
the Father loves you because you are willing to give your life. No one takes your life from you. You give it up of your own free will. You are the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the Good Shepherd who understands our frailty and knows each one of us by name. There are some big themes in this that we need to keep hold of during this time of pandemic lockdown as we move back down the levels and re-engage with life. But there are also big themes that we need to keep hold of as we read the rest of John, especially how the Good Shepherd tradition describes the relationship between the Father and Jesus. This week we have the well-known passage from John 14, a passage that we often read as a standalone passage, and I want to su suggest that that's a mistake. It's also often used by Christians to uh, say that we are the only ones that really know God, and while well, everyone else is either out or condemned. It's read in a very exclusionary way. But as I've said on many occasions, we need to put the passage back. And one of the things that means is ignoring that this actually starts at the beginning, the beginning of a chapter. As, as I've said before, the chapters and the verses were added to all the Bible texts much later. They weren't part of the original text written by each of the authors. And when they were put in, they were put in for the convenience of later readers and didn't really do justice to how John or any of the readers, any of the writers, had actually structured, um, structured what they provided. And this is one of the classic examples of where a chapter heading in the middle of a story really does a disservice for what John was trying to do. So this passage that we heard today is actually in the middle of a story. And it's in the middle of a story where Jesus doesn't stop talking. Well, that's kind of a description of John's gospel, but it's particularly true here. Jesus doesn't start talking at the beginning of chapter 14. He has already been talking. So if we were to put this back, we would find that the story is set in John's version of the Last Supper. Those disciples who have gathered for that Last Supper know that some very powerful people in Jerusalem want Jesus dead. This is not a happy meal. This is a tense meal. They know the end is coming and they're not sure what that will look like. They're not sure what that will mean for Jesus and they're not sure what that will mean for each one of them. So they're filled, filled with uncertainty, fear, maybe a bit of terror. Like, well, some of those emotions would be true for some of us as well. And when they arrive, Jesus meets them and he washes their feet, which, if we're honest, just leaves them a whole lot more confused than they were before. And then he says that one of them will betray him. And Judas goes out into the night. More confusion. More disbelief. And when Judas is gone, Jesus tells them that he's going somewhere where they cannot come. And that they are to love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, when you love each other. This is not a rule that Jesus is giving here. 
It's just how he is inviting them to survive what is about to happen. He's in essence saying, I'm leaving you. Hold on to each other. Love each other. Support each other. Stick with each other. And if you do that, you'll get through this. Maybe good words for us at this time as well. But Peter's having none of that and says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll give up my life for you. To which Jesus replies, Will you give up your life for me? I assure you that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be too. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says, no, we don't. Ike, how, how can we know the way? We have no idea where you're going. And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will also know the Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And so it goes on, as we heard this morning. As we listen to these words, as these words from our Gospel reading, we need to remember that they are spoken in the midst of broken relationships, doubt, confusion, exasperation, fear, terror. So as we listen to those words, what do we hear? Do we hear Jesus giving deep theological lectures, as he's so often interpreted as giving at this point? I hear Jesus giving words of comfort to his friends, to those that he lived with for three years in his compassion for this grieving, fearful, confused group of people lost in all that is happening around them. I hear Jesus, the Good Shepherd, compassionately offering provision and protection. And I suggest that when we read these words and the words that follow, we need to remember that they are words of compassion. Jesus is inviting them to trust all that they have experienced of Jesus up to that point and to know that in that experience they have also experienced the compassion, the love, the provision, the protection of God the Father. Jesus isn't establishing theological dogma about who is in and who is out. He is offering reassurance that while they may feel like this is the end, and that what they have experienced is over, it is in fact the beginning. Even when all seems lost, even when Peter denies Jesus three times, even when they get it wrong, even then, there is a place in the heart of God for them, and for all of us. Even when they and we get it wrong, God still seeks to embrace us in love and compassion. God still seeks to embrace all in love and compassion. 
So what do these words offer us in our situation? On Friday, not only did we have those great words from, uh, from our um, daily office, but we also remembered Dame Julian of Norwich, who was one of the great English mystics. And I think she's got a lot to say to us, uh, not only because she wrote about God as mother, and that's a kind of useful thing on Mother's Day, but also she lived in some very turbulent times. Like we think we're living in turbulent times. She lived in the 1300s, and in England in the 1300s, things were not going well. They were in the midst of the Hundred Years' War, which was putting enormous strain on English finances and social structure. That boiled over in the Peasants' Revolt, and which ended in 1381, when all the Leaders were rounded up and taken to Norwich, where they were hung, drawn, and quartered. Norwich, where she lived. King Richard II was deposed in 1399. So there's all the turmoil around the court that led to that. The church itself was in turmoil. Through the 1300s and early 1400s, we have the two popes. And during this time, there were at least two, if not three, bubonic plagues which make what we are experiencing seem pretty ordinary. So who is Dame Julian? Well, we have no idea, really. We don't know her name. Uh, she takes her name from the church, Julian, uh, St. Julian of Norwich, uh, which, uh, which is where she set up her, uh, where she was an anchoress. Um, she described herself as simple and unlettered, but she was clearly steeped in monastic teaching, scripture, and English language. She was a Benedictine, and she wouldn't have been able to do what she was doing unless she came from the upper class. When she was about 30, she was very sick and received 16 visions that led her to write her two books in around 1342. They are the first books to be written in Middle English. And so she is renowned as a preeminent English mystic and writer, and is recognized as one of the doctors of the church. And while she was never a mother herself, she had a lot to say about God as mother. And so today I want to finish with three passages, uh, quoting from her writings. And I think each of these has something to offer us, both on Mother's Day and as we continue to live in lockdown, whether at level three or level two. I saw and understood that the high might of the Trinity is our Father, and the deep wisdom of the Trinity is our Mother, and the great love of the Trinity is our Lord. And furthermore, I saw that the second person, who is our Mother, substantially the same beloved person, has now become our Mother centrally. The second person of the Trinity is our Mother in nature in our substantial creation, in whom we are founded and rooted, and he is our mother of mercy in taking our sensuality. And so our mother is working on us in various ways, in whom our parts are kept undivided, but for in our mother Christ we profit and increase in mercy. He transforms and restores us. And but the power of his passion, his death and his resurrection 
he, he unites us to our substance. And in this she showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying on the palm of my hand. As it seemed to me, and as it was round as a ball, I looked at it with, with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was um, answered in my understanding. It lasted and always will because God loves it. And thus everything has being through the love of God. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. The third is that God preserves it. And what did I see in it? It is that God is the creator and the protector and the lover. For until I am substantially united to him, I can never have perfect rest or true happiness. Until that is, I am so attached to him that there can be no created thing between my God and me. And so our good Lord answered to all the questions and doubts which I could raise, saying most comfortingly, I may make all things well, and I can make all things well, and I shall make all things well, and I will make all things well, and you will see yourself that every kind of thing will be well. And in these words, God wishes us to be enclosed in rest and in peace. So whatever happens, may we hold on to that rest and peace.